Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, and about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. This week, we are reaching what would be, it's a turning point, it's a pivot point in the Gospel of John. And with the raising of Lazarus, we we reach the end of what in John is called... um, the book of signs. And so this is really chapter 2 through chapter 11, where Jesus does seven, seven different signs. And the thing about these signs is they are all pointing beyond themselves to a deeper truth and, and deeper reality about who God is, about who Jesus is, and what the world looks like when it's living under God's rule. 
And so we go from the book of signs to the book of glory. And the book of glory is about Jesus's impending death on the cross and how that reveals more than anything else God's glory. And when we talk about God's glory, my favorite definition um, of it is this. It comes from uh, the great uh, Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, and he says, glory isn't an attribute of God. So it's not like God's mercy or God's justice or God's omnipotence or omniscience. Those are all attributes of God. Glory is not an attribute of God, but rather, says Edward, it is the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. So it's like all of those things as they come crashing together in God's amazingness. That is God's glory. And so that's what's coming. And what John is going to show us is, is how the cross is where we will see most clearly the admirable conjunction of the diverse excellencies of God in Christ. Well, here we are, and this is the last, and this is the greatest sign in John. This is the sign par excellence. It's the seventh sign, and so we know if we know anything about how numbers work in the Bible, when you get to number seven, that is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. You know, there's seven days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. God stopped. So, so when we get to seven, things are complete. And so this is the most complete sign, the most perfect sign, the clearest sign pointing us to who the reality of Jesus is and what he came to do. And so that's something that we, we just have to keep in our, our minds from the outset in order to understand that at its core, this is not a story about Lazarus. It's a story about Jesus. I mean, Lazarus doesn't even show up until like the very last couple verses. It's about Jesus. And it's about what he, who he is and what he came to do. And so John 11, it's a, it's a sign. And it's pointing us to something that's essential to understand about Jesus. And so to understand what those, that essential thing is, we're going to look at four things in this passage. And so the first thing is, is the complaint. The second is the consolation. The third is the confession. And the last is the command. So complaint, consolation, confession, command. But before we get to that, there's just something that's really interesting in these first six verses that I want to touch on. Something that we, we might miss, but, but really gets at, 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 at the whole reality of what this passage means. If, if we grasp this, then we can begin to grasp what it is this sign is all about. And so we get, you know, initially this, this detail explaining that there was a certain man who was ill named Lazarus, and, and word gets sent to Jesus uh, by his sisters, Mary and Martha. And then Jesus, when he hears this, he says to uh, his disciples, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And when Jesus says this, he's really actually speaking to no one in particular. We, we can assume that this message is going to his disciples or it's going to the messengers who have sent this message to him, but the, the, the addressee is not made clear. And so we can assume that he's also speaking to us, saying, pay attention to this. And so, what we're going to see is, is going to be the beginning of this glory, this, this conjunction of these diverse excellencies. And what follows, we are going to see the sheer awesomeness of God on full display. And so then we get to verses 5 and 6, which in and of themselves would be a little bit troubling. In our translation, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, how would you finish that sentence? You know, you hear, Jesus loves this family. 
He gets word that Lazarus is ill. So Jesus went right there. He went right there. He said, I'm going right to the guy. I'm going to heal him. I mean, this is, I love these people. I got to be there. Or, you know, he's like, I'll go visit him. I'll speak a word of healing, you know, from a distance because that works too for Jesus. So he does that in other places. So I'll just say it now. Heal Lazarus. Lazarus, you're no longer sick. And then I'll go visit him. That's how I would fill in the blank. That's how I would finish the sentence if I were John, you know, writing this gospel, making this up. But that's not what it says. It says, so when Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved them, he waited to come to them. And how does that make any sense? That because he loved them, he waited. And so it only makes sense if we understand this thing, that this is not just a miracle, it's a sign. And because it's a sign, it's important that it point in the right direction. Jesus' love caused him to delay because he wants, to be, he wants this family to be the one to whom and through whom this greatest sign of all occurs and is revealed. And it's because he loves them that he delays two days so that they can see this demonstration of what resurrection life really means. Life that is forever beyond the power of death to touch. It is because he loves them that he is going to perform this sign for them. This sign that is going to end up costing him his own life. Because this is the sign that leads to Jesus' death. And the great irony here is this, and we need to understand this from the outset, that when Jesus says, this illness will not end in death, that is absolutely true when it comes to Lazarus, but it's not true for Jesus. Because this illness, which brings about this last sign, this is the precipitating event for the plots and the plans that are going to lead to Jesus' death in John. And so he is giving life that leads to death. That leads to life. And so understanding this is going to help us understand many things that happen throughout the rest of this passage. That this is about more than a miracle. It's about a sign revealing deep and profound things about the Father and Son. And they are a sign that says at the very end, this way to the cross. And so trying as as best we can to hold all of these things in our heads, which is not easy. Let's move on to the rest of story. And so first we're going to focus on the complaint. And the complaint, it comes first from Martha and then from Mary. And last of all, the complaint comes from the crowd. So Jesus waits for two days before he arrives at Bethany, at which point we're told that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. This also, this detail makes Jesus look a little better since it's certain almost that when he had received the news of Lazarus's illness, that, that Lazarus had already died. But nevertheless, when Jesus arrives, Martha rushes out to meet him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And later, after Jesus has this conversation with Martha and and he calls for Mary and she comes out to meet him and, and she just falls down at his feet in total grief and sorrow. And she says the exact same thing as her sister, word for word. Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. And after Jesus weeps and the crowds, they see how much Jesus truly loved this man. Some of them say, well, 
Isn't this the same guy who opened the eyes of a blind man? Something that no one ever heard before. Couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Martha and Mary, they complain using the exact same words, but the crowd, you know, they're they're all getting at basically the same thing. If only Jesus had shown up sooner, Lazarus would still be alive. And these complaints come from living in what I call, it's the world of the if only. And before I say that, I just want to say that uh, complaining to God is itself an act of faith. So scripture has ample examples and, and words that, that say that, that complaining isn't disbelief. It's part of belief. It, it has a long and storied history in the Bible. Think of the book of Job, the book of Lamentations, the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord, how long? We've all been there. We've all done that. And, and scripture gives us permission and words to do that. But if only, it's a hard place to to be and and it's an impossible place to remain. Because if only comes from this place where we think, if I could just change something about the past, then, you know, my life and, and everything afterwards would be different, would be better. I might not be living with this grief or this anger or this disappointment or this hopelessness or this sadness or this depression or this despair or this regret. Right? If only this had been different. If only I had been different or this had happened differently. Then everything would be better or things would be a lot better. Right? The entire premise of the movie Back to the Future is if only, right? If only... Marty can change some things about the past, then his whole present is going to be a lot better. If only I'd tried harder in school or I'd studied something different, right? If only I'd visited more or had more substantive conversations with this person before they passed away. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner. If only the election had turned out a different way. If only I'd gotten help before it was too late and I lost my family, my friends, my job, and the trust of so many people. We all know what it's like to live in the if only. If only. And then there's the if only God. If only God had answered that prayer. If only God had shown himself more clearly. If only God had healed me or healed my loved one. If only God had stopped that tragedy. If only, if only, if only. And there's something alluring about the counterfactual world that might have been when it comes to if only. But there's something that's so painful about it too. If only Jesus, if only you'd gotten here just a little bit sooner. But the thing about living in the if only is that it leaves us trapped, stuck in the past because that's the one thing that we can never change is the past. And the hard part about the past is it's so accessible to us. We can see it so Clearly, that's why the saying is, it's a cliche, but it's true. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We look into the past and, and, and we have this kind of whole complete understanding of events and, and how one event relates to all these other events and we can string them together. That's, that's the pain of the past because we, we feel like we understand it more than anything else. But we can't do anything 
about it. The world of if only is really, it's the world as it exists under the power of death. Because death, like the past, is irreversible. And we are completely and totally powerless before its destructive power. So if we want to see the sign of Jesus' glory, then we need to understand what exactly it is that he is confronting. And it's the world living under the power and the grip of if only. So that's the complaint, if only, Lord. But now we move to, to the consolation that Jesus offers to the grieving. So Martha complains and Jesus consoles her saying, your brother will rise again. The consolation that Jesus brings to the if-only world is resurrection. That's what this sign is about. Understanding what resurrection means and how that speaks into our current situation. And Martha, she thinks she understands the resurrection. She was, you know, a good Jewish woman, a pious Jewish woman. And so belief in the resurrection at this point was widespread. It was a popular Jewish belief. And it was this belief that at, at the end of history, the end time, whenever that is... God's going to come back and act in this decisive way and everyone's going to come out of their grave and those who have been righteous, they're going to be ushered into eternal life, whatever that looks like. And those who have broken the law or been faithless, uh, they're going to receive their just desserts, their punishment. And so when Mary hears this, when, when Martha hears this promise of resurrection hope, it's, it's, in the future. It's way off. It's, it's sort of like pie in the sky in the great by and by when I die. But then Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And this is, is the great promise of hope that Jesus has for us all. That the resurrection isn't just some event in the future that will happen to everyone. But, but, but it's that Jesus bringing this event into the present in his own person. It's powerful and it's pressing and it addresses each and every one of us personally. Resurrection life, resurrection hope belongs to everyone who when asked, do you believe this? Answers, yes. One commentator said, what does it mean for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life? And she put it this way, and I think it's really wonderful. She said, for Jesus to be the resurrection means that physical death has no power over believers. Which means that their future is determined by their faith in Jesus, not by their death. So I'm the resurrection means that your future is in Jesus' hands, not death's hands. And for Jesus to be the life means that the believers in the present Their present is also determined by Jesus' power for living, experienced as the gift of eternal life. So resurrection, life, means your future belongs to Jesus, not to death. And Jesus being the life means that he gives you the power for this kind of living now. This kind of quality of life, this, this characteristic of life lived in obedience to him starts now. And he gives you that power right here and now. And so the question then isn't, you know, when will you die? But when will you believe in him so you can start living the kind of life that death will have no power to stop? So Jesus' words are powerful. They are totally redefining resurrection from something out in the future to say, I'm bringing the future into the present reality, and it starts now. 
But he doesn't just console with words. He consoles with his emotions and his actions too. Something strange happens in in verse 33. When Mary came to Jesus, she falls at his feet and, and, and he sees her weeping with grief along with these fellow mourners. They're sharing in her grief. As well, and, and it says in our translation that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. But this is kind of a nice, polite translation of, of what's actually happening in this verse. It's, it's soft-pedaling Jesus' emotions here. What it really says is that Jesus, when he saw them mourning and weeping, it, 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 it literally says Jesus was deeply angry. He was angered in his spirit and became profoundly agitated. When Jesus sees this mourning and weeping, he is filled with a kind of rage. You can see why this would be a troubling thing to translate. In the face of mourning, we think of sympathy and empathy, not anger coming out. And so how is this consolation that Jesus gets angry in the face of this mourning and grief? And it's consoling because it shows us that Jesus hates death this much. He's not, you know, sentimental about it. He's not stoic and resigned about it. He he doesn't accept its inevitability. Jesus hates death because death, whatever else it might be, is a sign of the power of darkness in a world that should be filled with God's light. It is a force of uncreation and chaos loosed upon God's beloved creation. Death is an end. Whereas God is a God of endless and eternal new beginnings. Jesus hates what death does to us because he despises death itself. So Jesus consoles with his words, I am the resurrection and the life, with his emotions, anger in the face of death, and finally with his actions. And what is that consoling action? That brings us to verse 35, 11, John eleven thirty-five. the trivia question, right? What is the shortest verse in the Bible or the New Testament at least? Jesus wept. And these aren't sentimental tears. These are bitter tears. And that Jesus wept means that we can can find solace, right, in his solidarity with our grief. That Jesus wept means that he entered with us down into the pit of utter despair. He fully (laughs) understands our situation and our plight, but it's more than that. And oftentimes in, in contemporary theology, it, it sort of gets left with God's solidarity with the suffering and the broken and the hurting and the poor and the powerless. You know, that the good news is that God in Christ enters down into the pit of despair with us. But that's only half the story. I had a systematic theology professor with a very unique way of speaking. Uh, and, and, he, and he put it this way in one of our lectures as he was talking about the, the atoning work of Christ. How does Christ rescue us from our plight under sin and death? And so when he was talking about, you know, this, the basically leaving the good news that God entering down into the pit with us, and isn't that awesome that God can empathize with our situation? He said, I don't understand how that's good news. I mean, if God just comes down into the pit with you, I mean, you're still in the pit. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that is right. It's not good news. If it, you know, I guess misery loves company, like there's some sort of good news around misery loving company. But no, it's just, I don't understand. And I said, I don't understand either, professor. Don't get it twisted. Jesus' tears are about more than mere sentimentality or, you know, solidarity with the suffering. And on this, uh, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, he's spot on when he talks about the meaning of Jesus' tears here. He says, but his weeping with them means that he is fighting 
for them. For on the way to the grave of Lazarus, weeping with those who wept in the face of the unequivocally revealed reality of death, the participation of Jesus is not a compromise. It is itself a resolute no. And he was writing in German, so it was a resolute nein to this reality. Looking this death and its death more soberly in the face than anyone else, he is already on the way to banish it from the world. Yeah, his weeping is the beginning of his fighting against it. And so our greatest consolation in an if-only world, you know, isn't just that Jesus has something to say about it, but he is going to do something about it. And what he says and does belongs to everyone who believes in him. Which brings us to the next thing, the, the confession of Martha. And so even before Jesus asks her if she believes these words that he just said about being the resurrection and the life, we see Martha's faith. Because she complains, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she doesn't stop there. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he is going to give it to you. But even now. How much faith does it take to believe in Jesus? That much. Faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. That's all it takes. But even now to understand that wherever Jesus is, there is hope. Martha's faith, faith is that Jesus' power is greater than her current situation. And there is no situation hopeless as long as Jesus is there. And so faith is moving from if only to but even now and lastly to if Jesus Jesus asked Martha, and he asked each and every one of us, do you believe this? Do you believe that if you belong to me, I own your future, and I own your present, and not death? In the words of, of the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he is challenging, challenging her to move from an if-only to an if-Jesus world. If Jesus who she is who she is coming to believe that he is, if Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was promised by the prophets, the one who has come into the world, if Jesus is God's own son, the one in whom the living God is strangely and newly present, if he is the resurrection in person, life come to life, if Jesus is that and even more, then we don't need to look at, at the past with regret or if, with, at the future with dread. We can live in this present moment with hope. And we can take consolation, too, in the fact that Martha, even though she has this but even now faith, and she says, Jesus, yes, yes, if Jesus, I believe you are these things, she has this faith. She's still the one who, when Jesus says, remove the stone, says, but Lord, it's going to stink. He's still dead in there, and he's going to stay dead. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. We're, we're all works in progress. And so when they finally do roll the stone away, we, we get to the command. And that's the last thing I want to look at very briefly. And what's instructive is that before Jesus issues this command, what does he do? He prays. He prays that in what he does, the Father would get the credit and people would believe that he is the Son whom God sent. And so it, it's a good prayer for us to pray before we do anything as believers or as a congregation. God, when we do this, we pray that you would get the credit and through what we do, People would believe in Jesus. And Jesus' command is simple. Lazarus, come out. 
And John tells us that he said it in a loud voice, roaring like a lion. And with this command, we have the immovable object, meeting the irresistible force. The immovable object of death, meeting the irresistible force of eternal life. Death meets Christ. And Christ conquers. And, and I picture it at this moment. Like, sometimes you'll see this trope on TV shows. Two people are competing for a dog's affections. And whoever, like, they both call to the dog. And whoever the dog comes to gets to keep it. You know? It's happened. If you, I feel like it's been a lot of TV shows, right? That's like a, that's a cliche. It's a trope. And so we have death saying, Lazarus, just stay, stay in here. And Jesus is saying, come, come here, Lazarus. Come out, come home. And the good news is that Jesus wins. And so, friends, this morning, if you're struggling with anything, if you are living in an if-only world, if you're all wondering, wow, this is all just too good to be true or, or, or it's made up, right? I, I, I urge you, I implore you, come out, come to Jesus. Leave the world of sin and death behind and embrace eternal life right now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.